This is B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith, and Rob Sachs and I are on a bit of a road trip. We are looking for the Mason-Dixon line. We've just pulled the car over to the side of the road by a stone that we think might be a stone that marks the Mason-Dixon line. Yes, it's a very old-looking stone. It's not that big, but I'm thinking this may be one of them, so let's get out and check it out. All right, let's go. Yeah. All right, we're walking. We're walking to the stone. It's pretty, pretty epic because it's raining, having to walk against the wind and rain to get to the stone. Also, it's just on the side of a highway here, so here we go. It says, witness post. Please do not disturb. Survey marker. It's not a very impressive stone, I've got to say. No, but it looks pretty old, and there's some etchings in it, so I guess it's pretty significant. So on one side is the letter P, as in Pennsylvania. And on the other side, it looks like an M, but it's kind of buried in the ground, so let's just say it's an M. And the P and the M, it's between Pennsylvania and Maryland. And way back in the 1700s, this line was mapped out by these guys, Mason and Dixon, to define the lines in in a border dispute between British colonies. Right. And uh, they ultimately settled that dispute. But really, the significance of this line was much bigger uh, back when the Civil War was happening and the states were deciding who was going to be in the north and who was in the south. So right now we are on the border between the north and the south. You would think with such an historic site there wouldn't be tractor trailers trying to run you off the road, but that seems to be the case here. Seems to be the case of our next story too, where I think um, our contributor feels a little bit run off the road. Sarah Neal, she started off as two with her and her husband. Now she's three with her little baby and uh, she's feeling like uh, her borders are being invaded a little bit. Oh, and Rob, let me say that her husband's name is Brent, and their baby is Max. Imagine the more pregnant you get, you're carrying a laundry basket. It's a laundry basket that you can't set down, and it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And you love it. You know, it's your favorite little laundry basket in the universe, and you're thankful for it. But you're, t- you're tired. Everything you do, if you want to plant flowers in the garden, if you want to teach class um, or anything, go to lunch with your friends, you've got this heavier and heavier and heavier laundry basket with you in and out of the car, up and down the stairs, in and out of the house. And you think, oh, please, please let me have this baby tomorrow. The closer you get, you know, I actually asked my doctor, I said, is there any rule about inducing before the due date? And she laughed at me and said that I was a very normal person, and no, I couldn't do that. Did you think that once the baby was born, you'd finally get to set the laundry basket down? You'd finally have your body back, have yourself back? So that's exactly what I thought. I pictured myself as I'd been before I was pregnant, and Brent and Max together as one little happy family out of a movie or something. But so the reality 
the reality was different. The reality was you don't set the laundry basket down. Now you, you still have the laundry basket. You can set it down for a second, but it talks to you. <laughs> it talks to you. It cries. It needs to be fed and all sorts of wonderful things that you want to do. And that's what I didn't understand. When people would say to us, enjoy it because it's going to change. And um, then we had the baby and I was shocked. I was like, I'm, I'm still pregnant. Now, what, what do you mean by that? So when you're pregnant, there is no boundary between you and the child. You are the same. You, you share everything. And then when the baby is born, you think, okay, now I will have myself back again. Now I will, there will be a boundary between us. And then there's not because the baby is still so fragile and so little and needs you for absolutely everything. It can breathe by itself, but honestly, that's about it. How is the experience for your husband, Brent? So Brent is a very empathetic man. He's um, incredibly involved. And Brent really, when I started talking about this whole idea of we're still pregnant and Brent really wanted to identify with that. And he's like, absolutely. I totally understand. And the, then of course the older Max gets, and now that we give him a bottle and he's eating solid foods and things like that, Brent is sharing in a lot of those duties, you know, but I think that there is a difference between men and women Maybe, I mean, I wouldn't say that this is across the board, but I think that some stereotypes come out of this, that if you spent nine, 10 months of your life hosting another entity, you change. And Brent didn't do that. I did that. And so now when Max cries in the middle of the night, I hear him. And the thing that's funny is my husband doesn't do that. I do that. And I... I really don't think it's a lack of commitment on his part. I think it's because I was pregnant for nine, 10 months and I just do it now. So basically your sense of boundaries, your sense of what is your personal space and what is you changed in that nine months. Inside Sarah, personal Sarah and outside Sarah has completely changed forever. Now, Inside Sarah also has another person <laughs> forever. And I think probably forever because I tell my mom this and she just laughs at me. She laughs at you? She laughs at me in a, in a loving way. But yeah, she does. She says, this never goes away. And she reminds me of when I was hit by a car, when I was living in Alaska. My mom lives just north of Louisville in southern Indiana, which is a long way from Fairbanks, Alaska. I mean, I might as well have been in Russia, honestly. And I was riding my bike and a side mirror of a truck tagged me and um, I was medevaced 360 miles south and everyone thought I would die. And my mom called the airport and there are not that many flights that go from Louisville to Alaska, but she was on the next one. She was there in 15 hours, which is amazing. She was there with the thunder of a mother bear protecting her cubs. She was there to stay forever. When I talked to her about that, there was no thought about it. She just did it. It's just natural. It's just who she's always been since she had me. I was her first kid. And she said, you're the one who made me a mom. And ever since then, 
ever since I became a mother, I have been that person. And it's a, it's a new person. We would all take care of our loved ones. All of us would. But it's a different kind of responsibility. And she says, it never changes. Sarah Neal, thanks so much for sharing this with us. Thank you, Tamara. And thanks for listening. Neil is a longtime B-side contributor. She lives in Vincennes, Indiana with her husband Brent and her son Max. This is B-side. I'm Tamara Keith and Rob Sachs and I are out looking for markers of the Mason-Dixon line because this show is all about boundaries and hey, the Mason-Dixon line is a pretty significant boundary in American history. So boundaries are not always physical demarcations. They're not lines between nations always or states. There are also personal boundaries. And our next story comes from Kathy Duchamp, who has virtually no boundaries when it comes to her dogs. It's 4.41 in the morning. And I really didn't want to be awake this early. But there's something that woke me up. Something that wakes me up a lot. And that's Willa. She's a pug. She's 14 years old. And I love her, but she's driving me crazy. That's very disturbing. (laughs) Not conducive to sleep. That's Jean the guy I share my bed with, along with Willa. It keeps you awake. It keeps me awake. We're constantly restless trying to shift her, move her, to get her to stop snoring during the night. Wearing earplugs and other things doesn't even help anymore. Some of you listening to this is going to be you idiots just kick her butt out of the bed and put her in her crate. Yes. Sadly, she howls and whines and screams through the night because she suffers from major separation anxiety. We have another whiny dog, Lucy, a 12-year-old toy terrier. But at least she doesn't snore. So how did it come to this? The backstory is that I've known the dogs much longer than Jean. I got them when I was married a union that ended not coincidentally because of boundary issues. For me and my ex, the dogs were like living stuffed animals. They brought back the comfort of childhood. Stuffed animals don't leave skid marks on the pillow or the sheets. (laughs) They don't snore. They don't hork up loogies. A few months ago, I came across a show on cable TV called It's Me or the Dog. I wonder what the producers would suggest for Willa the Snoring Pug. I feel like we've tried everything. And as Willa gets older, the snoring gets louder. And then there was that pill you found called Snore Stop. Mm-hmm. Which seemed to occasionally work. And then there's antihistamines, Benadryl. When pharmaceuticals failed, we turned to a $50 contraption called the Kong Dispenser. 
It released red plastic toys loaded with peanut butter into Willa's crate every four hours. She just freaked out until the next Kong came and gave her more food. So she just whined for hours. This whole thing has strained our relationship. The real breaking point, though, wasn't the snoring. It was figuring out what to do with the dogs when we went on vacation. I'd always hired a dog sitter to sleep with Willa and Lucy. Jean thought that was ridiculous. So I turned to my friend, Cece Bauer. Put them in a kennel like everybody else does. And I resisted. Yes, because you thought their feelings were going to be hurt. Right, and it's loud and noisy and stressful, and they'd have to sleep on a concrete floor with dog poop all around them. Well, I think they keep the kennels clean, but they are dogs. What do you mean? I mean, dogs are okay with sleeping in a kennel with loud barking noises and cement floors. How do you know that? Um, Because they're dogs. I checked out a few kennels and finally chose one. Things have worked out fine. I guess I'm starting to understand what Cece is adamant about. That there are boundaries for everyone. Without them? Oh, life would be chaos. I mean, we have rules with the kids, rules with the dogs. I even have a cat. The cat can't climb up on stuff either. In our house, at least, we have to have some semblance of order or we would not get through our days. There's chaos in our house. But what can we do? The dogs are old. Imagine switching up the routine of your 98-year-old grandmother. The dogs won't be around that much longer. And so we just suffer. Kathy Duchamp is an editor and reporter, and she lives in Baltimore. And Rob and I are on the road, the Mason-Dixon Line Road, looking for a Mason-Dixon Line marker. Here it is! (laughs) It's a missile-like surveyor marker pointing out another point along the Mason-Dixon Line. And we're going to pull over and check this one out, see if it's any cooler than the stubby one we saw a little bit while back. All right, we just pulled over by a sign that says Mason-Dixon Line, and it says 105th Mile Stone. 500 feet beyond this point on private property, this stone is located. It bears a coat of arms of the Lord Baltimore and William Penn. Well, even though it says it's on private property, I think we should, um, I think we should just go out and walk on some private property and check it out. I think absolutely. Let's hope they don't have a shotgun. (laughs) Okay, we're now walking towards an obelisk in the middle of a random field. The person who is featured in our next story would really not appreciate what we're doing because it is wildly impolite to walk on someone else's property, private property, without asking, but that's what we're doing because we're coming to see this Mason-Dixon marker, and so we're doing it. And while Rob and I check this thing out, uh, check out this story from Catherine Spangler. She uh, introduces us to a modern-day Miss Manners. Ten of Gabby's friends received the same intriguing invitation. Please join Gabby for a charming tea party to celebrate her ninth birthday. 
Bring your best manners, and you'll leave with even better ones. It's the day of the party, and the kids are arriving. They look like they just got lectures from their parents to be on their best behavior. So what I will do at first is I will explain to everybody what will be happening today. They're here to meet a woman known only as Mrs. DeGroot. She's in her 60s and is flawlessly dressed in pearls, pumps, and a cardigan. She stands in the center of the room with her hands at her waist. So just like you have to know how to play a sport, you need the rules. Etiquette rules are the rules for life. Mrs. DeGroote runs a charm school out of her home in Seattle. When she's not moonlighting as an etiquette teacher on the weekends, she's a wife to Mr. DeGroote and a mother to a teenage daughter. I don't do any advertising. Word of mouth seems to be, you know, really the best. And the children talk about Mrs. DeGroote all the time. And so I'm kind of a legend at a lot of dinner tables. For the next few hours, Mrs. DeGroote will give the kids lessons in various rooms of her house, the bathroom, the dining room, and the living room. She hopes to instill them with the importance of being polite. When children know the rules, then they know how to behave. So for them, it gives them boundaries. And I think children need boundaries so that they feel safe. So come on in, and we'll be like with our shoulders square and our chin is up. The kids obediently follow their teacher into the bathroom for their first lesson. Never look in someone else's medicine cabinet. So now, if you were in someone's bathroom, would you look in their cupboards? She demonstrates the dangers of being nosy. And then, all of a sudden, marbles fall from the cabinet and bounce across the floor. You don't know what you might find in someone's cupboard. You do not know what you are going to find in someone's cupboard. That's why you don't look. Someday, when the kids are all grown up and can actually reach the cabinet themselves, they'll know never to open it. Mrs. DeGroote calls it planting a seed. And they're all so open to learn this, this skill and this tool. So by planting the seed in their minds, it's just so wonderful to see them grow. So now we'll go into the tea room, and we will look for our name tags, and then we will just stand at our chair. And we don't sit down until you've been invited to sit by your hostess, okay? Inside the dining room, the tea table looks too delicate to touch. It's laid out with fine china and tall trays of sweets. Would you try, like, a scone? Um, I'll try one of these scones. The kids eat watercress sandwiches and sip cucumber water. Mrs. DeGroote sits at the head of the table, quizzing them on the lessons they've already learned. Please and thank you. Why do you think they call them magic words? I think they're magic words because when you use them, you get you get more you get more. When she mentions posture, the kids snap straight up in their chairs. When she asks a question, they answer in unison. So what is it? Part of my reach. Yeah. Well, I didn't think I liked children, and I had my daughter quite late in life. And then when I took her to school, I found that children weren't saying please and thank you. Or you'd give them a ride in your car, and they'll just go, bye. And I'm like, bye what? So I thought, okay, somebody needs to step up. So I just started mentoring, you know, children. 
Parents show up to take their kids home for a dinner that will hopefully be filled with pleases, thank yous, and pardon my reaches. I have high expectations of you children. You're paying very close attention, and you're all very, very well behaved, and it makes a huge difference in your lives. Mrs. DeGroote stands by the door, looking pleased. You just have a few skills and use good, charming etiquette, and you can get anywhere. Catherine Spangler produced that story. She lives in Seattle, where she always says please and thank you. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and Rob Sachs and I are now walking back to the car because we're freezing. And uh, I think we've more or less accomplished what we came here for. We've seen Maryland. We've seen Pennsylvania. We've seen North and South. And now I'd like to see the inside of a warm, cozy apartment where hopefully there's a little bit more heat. (laughs) So we took some pictures while we were out here. And I don't know, I may post them on Facebook. What do you think, Rob? Would you post them on Facebook? I would post them on Facebook. So there's this issue with Facebook where you have to decide what your boundaries are. Like which pictures are okay for Facebook and which personal information is okay for Facebook. And Abigail Beshkin has been trying to figure that out herself. On May 13th, the day I turned 35, I joined Facebook. I realize this sounds like a pretty small deal, but to me it seemed like moving into a new territory that I'd both resisted and feared. The feelings I'd expected when I joined Facebook did rear their ugly heads. A lot of people from high school and college friended me, and I accepted. And as I'd expected, their pages had pictures of them playing with their kids and living rooms, and the living rooms looked like they were scanned out of Pottery Barn catalogs. And for years, for me, it felt like I'd been sort of slogging through the routine of work, gym, home, takeout, sushi. And meantime, my friends had fallen in love, gotten married, Their Facebook relationship boxes had these little red hearts. Soon I started getting into the whole Facebook thing. I mean, I found myself commenting on my friends' photos like, oh, my God, your kids are totally adorable. And I'd write on my friends' walls, Jess, are you free Saturday for coffee or yoga? I got into the whole accepting virtual cupcakes and martinis and joining in rounds of which superhero are you? And, of course, there was the status section. The status section lets people write what they're doing at any given moment. And so I could log in and see Hillary had a nice day of shopping. Renee is tired. Susan is very tired. And... I did. Before I knew it, I was changing my Facebook status several times a day. Abigail is going to the grocery store. Abigail just did her grocery shopping. Abigail is about to unpack her groceries. Why anyone would care, I don't know. I'm pretty sure no one did. It didn't matter. I loved it. Then one day, I realized something. 
I was walking through my neighborhood, and it's a pretty charming one that gets a significant part of its charm from the local artists who keep the organic grocery in business. And I was passing a group of guys with these straight leg jeans and shaggy beards, and they were carrying guitars, and I found myself thinking, Abigail lives in hipster hell. I realized I was thinking in Facebook speak. I wasn't just noticing things anymore. I was noticing them and turning them into Facebook quips in my head. But the problem was that these thoughts weren't staying in my head for long. And, and one night, having trekked my laundry out to my parents' house, I sat down at my mom's computer while my towels were spinning in the wash, and I wrote, Abigail wonders where her life has gone so wrong that she is still doing her laundry at her parents' house at the age of 35. But the next morning, I was feeling better. My laundry was all fresh-smelling and folded. I read my Facebook status, and I shuddered. I had morning-after Facebook regret. I called my friend Anne. I think I overshare on Facebook sometimes. Anne, never one to mince words, said, You totally do. You have to stop. She was right, of course. Although I understood how this had happened, I'd been working off hours for about two years, and I spent a lot of time alone. It was easy when it was just me and my laptop in my attic apartment. Posting on Facebook seemed as private as keeping my secrets to myself, but it was as much of a relief as screaming them out the window. So I've been really trying to log into Facebook less often and, you know, like actually go out. Every once in a while, though, I do fall into some old habits. A few weeks ago on a Friday night, I wanted to go out, but everyone I knew had plans. I came home and I poured myself a glass of wine and sat down at the computer. Abigail is tired of being a 35-year-old spinster and being broke and fat and of working nine hours a day. Abigail is just tired. I couldn't help myself. There are just some things you can blurt out on Facebook that you can't say when you're out for drinks. And sometimes you get responses from people that you'd never expect to hear from. So I sat at my computer and sipped my wine and looked at Facebook and a few minutes later, I saw this comment from Arun pop up on the screen. Arun was a grad school classmate of mine. I don't know him that well. But all of a sudden, there he was. I hear you, sister. I'm right there with you. Abigail Beshkin lives in Boston. And soon after she wrote that piece, she reconnected with an old summer camp boyfriend. And they had their first long chat on, you guessed it, Facebook. And then a few months later, actually the day she recorded the story for us, he asked her if she wanted to make it official. And so they changed their Facebook status to in a relationship with those ridiculous little red hearts. <laughs> so they're in a relationship. Abigail Beshkin is in a relationship. So that's all for this edition of B-Side. Our show was produced by Renee Gattel, Mia Lobel, and Charla Bear. 
We had stories from Sarus Faravar, Sarah Elzis, Scott Gurian, Sarah Neal, Catherine Spangler, Kathy Ducharme, and Abigail Beshkin. And Rob Sachs has spent the last hour with us, and he's the man behind What Would Rob Do?, the NPR podcast, blog, and book. To see photos from this adventure and to learn more about B-Side or how to make your own great radio, please visit our website. It's bsideradio.org. That's the letter B-S-I-D-E radio.org. Hey, we're also on Facebook, too, but we don't have any little hearts. I'm Tamara Keith. Thanks for listening. We are sailing to Philadelphia, a world away from the coldy tide. Sailing to Philadelphia